Romans 16, verse 16. That's where we ended last time. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. (coughs) Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. For those who are such... Oops, sorry. Forgive me. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sisypiter, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Please be seated. I promised somebody I would explain uh, briefly the... uh, the text, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And so I don't have plans to go through that as a major thing. So I'll give you a brief explanation now. Tertius is the secretary of Paul. So he writes it with his hand. And what happens there is he is simply writing out the words, but Paul is giving the words. So it's the letter of Paul in the same way that if I were to write you a letter and I asked an employee to write down or type the words that I'm saying, and then they sent that email and it were from me, uh, and they said, and it came from their email address, right? That would be sort of the same thing. You go, oh, this is from David, and it was sent by one of his employees, and the fact that it's from him uh, is not diminished by the fact that it came from somebody else's email address. It's the same sort of thing. So uh, he's a secretary or amanuensis um, is another way of referring to that. All right, so let's go through the main text today. <clears throat> So I'll greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. This is the end of the last section. And it has the greeting. So we have the duty to let in, the duty to honor. And so there's sort of this, this duty of loyalty to people that are Christians and who have a credible profession of faith. The duty to, to, to allow people in is a part of that. So gates do not merely block out. Gates allow in. The gates don't only let in. Gates also block out. And so, when you look at the next section, we move to the, to the negative side. So, when we talk about the authority of the church, you need to remember, there are four governing institutions that God has established by His law. These are the covenant institutions. There are blessings and curses on each of these things, which, let me, let me, let me, go into that a little bit more. What I mean by that is this. If you're a part of one of these institutions, whether you individually act or not, you participate in blessings and curses of these bodies if you're a part of them. Now the first one is the individual. There's only one person in that group. You get to enjoy the blessings of wise thought, words, and action that you do. And you get to enjoy the cursings of foolish thoughts, words, and actions of the things that you do. The heart knows its own suffering, and the heart knows its own joys. Now, that goes out into other bodies. You'll see blessing and cursing on individuals throughout the scriptures. Households are covenant institutions. You might be wise as an individual, but if your household leads you into foolishness or into wisdom, there are blessings and curses that you participate in based upon that. That is true of the church. 
and that is true of the state. You could be wise, you could have a wise household and a wise church, and if you have a foolish king that drags you into war, you can experience lots of curses. You can have a wise king, a wise household, and be wise as an individual. And if the church in that nation goes into foolishness, there will be much curse brought in. And you will find the other things are lost. So the idea of covenant curses and blessings, there's responsibility and you find God cursing individuals, households, churches, and states. You also find God blessing individuals, households, churches, and states. That works in the way where it happens for a generation, but it also happens across generations. And so these are things where it's not just what your generation does. There's things that occur before you. And so oaths are binding across generations. Covenants are binding across generations. You're born into a country, you don't get to vote on whether or not you're under that civil government. You just are. And the same is true of children born into the church. And so, the baptism of children is a recognition of that, of their holy seat. But the idea of who is in the church, who is in the state, who's in a household, you're born into a household. You don't choose to be there. You don't vote for that. Now, the one person who does get to choose, right? the man is in his own household. He gets to propose that people could enter. A wife gets to choose to join or not. And so those are the ways that we think about this. The wife covenants and she joins a household. So there's a special way in which women being born into their father's houses and leaving by marriage is a sort of ambassadorial role. There's this connecting ability. There's this way that, that women choose to enter into covenant to join a house. Women have the power to honor a house like no one else does. Women choose to swear loyalty in marriage to join a house and they bring their glory in and are the glory of their husband. Okay, So there's this powerful acting that occurs there. And so, man, if you have a wife, make sure to thank her for being your glory and for bringing her glory in to you and your house and to making it so that she's an honor to you. Now, the letting into the church, when we greet each other, when we give the right hand of fellowship, when we embrace each other, (coughs) when we give a holy kiss or the kiss of love, These things are an acknowledgement of the sharing together in covenanted brotherhood. And that's why it's such a travesty to give the right hand of fellowship to those who are undeserving. We are not to give the right hand of fellowship to heretical teachers. We are not to give the right hand of fellowship to those who have been excommunicated. We are not to give the right hand of fellowship in such a way as to be able to say, you don't call someone a brother who's not a brother. right? You can shake somebody's hand and not have it be the right hand of fellowship. But if you extend the hand and greet somebody as a brother and they're not a brother, let's say they're you know, a member of an apostate church, or let's say that they're, they themselves have said they don't believe, you don't call them brother. Or you don't acknowledge them as though they are the same. You, you intentionally differentiate the types of association that exist. There's a certain degree to which this is understood in some other parts of our culture. Um, in the veteran community, there's an acknowledgement of other people who have, who have taken an oath along with you, that they have joined the brotherhood of those who have sworn to defend the Constitution and to defend the people. And so you will see each other, uh, you see people who are um, either currently active or who are veterans oftentimes call each other brother. That's an intention to express some sort of a shared covenanting relationship. 
Now, at the same time, you think about that, it would be dishonorable in the church to acknowledge somebody as a brother who is covenant-breaking if you're in another covenanted relationship, like a veteran, okay, and you're with other people who are just breaking their covenant to defend the country or to ignore illegal orders, those would be things where it's wrong to acknowledge the other person as a covenanted brother in that relationship, right? So you think about the different covenanted institutions, there should not be an honoring with honor that is not due. And there should not be doing that in any of the covenant institutions. So we are focused on the church today, but I want you to see the applicability of that principle to any covenant institution, that you do not acknowledge people who have broken covenant and who are outside of that institution. Now, one last thing before we move on to the the text and the explanation more fully. One application of that was you see the covenanters of Scotland. They suffered much because they were unwilling to acknowledge illegitimate government. The government of Scotland had covenanted to uphold the Westminster Standards, to have Presbyterian government, and to refuse the Anglican Book of Common Prayer being imposed upon them. The Anglican Book of Common Prayer includes a requirement to kneel at the Lord's Supper, which is abominable. We don't bow before the bread and wine. It is not to be worshipped as though Christ were present in a transfigured form where the bread is replaced with his body and the wine replaced with his blood. It is a symbol. So these people refused to submit to that. And they said, the Lord Jesus Christ had to sit at a table in the example he appointed. There is no bowing. There is no kneeling, especially not before some priest. And so the refusal to do that was something that led to war. The refusal to accept bishops rather than elected presbyters The refusal to have vestments, a special uniform. These men went to war over that. And they said that the king, Charles I, had required of them to give up the crown rights of King Jesus over his church. And he had taken them to himself. And as a result that that kingship was tyrannical. And so they fought what was called the Bishop's War. And sometimes it's called the First and Second Bishop's Wars. It's really one is a defensive campaign and the other one is an offensive campaign. They won the first campaign, the First Bishop's War, which was when Charles sent an army into Scotland and the Scots defeated that army to be able to defend the Presbyterian order. The Second Bishop's War resulted was because of a second invasion attempt And the second invasion attempt was followed by an offensive campaign by the Scots to go into England. And so, in a successful campaign on the offense, the result was that the Puritans in England rose to resist as well. So the English Civil War was started by the successful resistance of the Scottish Covenanters against Charles I over worship and church government. This was not a small matter, It was a great matter. And their courage and their willingness to preserve right worship and their willingness to preserve right government made it so that when they were imposed upon by a tyranny, a human tyranny, they were willing to not only pick up the spiritual sword to speak the truth, but to pick up the physical sword to resist tyrants. (coughs) You will not have the courage to pick up the sword against tyrants unless you first are willing to guard the boundaries of the church without having to come to blood. You build up the capacity to care, to make greater sacrifices by first making lesser sacrifices. The training ground of dealing with the social awkwardness of not acknowledging, not commending, not being nice. The Bible nowhere commends niceness. 
The word nice is a French and Latin root that comes from the word stupid. Niceness, which sometimes is used as a synonym for kindness, is sort of the idea that you make sure to avoid making waves. You make sure to avoid doing things that make anybody uncomfortable. Christianity requires you to make lots of people uncomfortable, including yourself. Verse 17 says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Here's how this manifests itself in most of the church. Don't read verse 17. This is how most churches deal with verse 17. Don't read verse 17. Don't apply verse 17. If you do apply verse 17, you're the divisive one. You know when verse 17 gets read? When you apply verse 17. The only people who ever get the, the divisive verses quoted to them by modern church governments are the people who try to apply them. The people who don't get them applied to them are typically the ones who are heretics or who are divisive. So what we need to do is we need to identify what divisiveness is and what heresy is, and we need to learn to apply the commandment to be divisive towards the divisive. Right? Have you noticed this? Paul just ordered you to avoid divisive people. That sounds divisive. It is. You have a commandment to be divisive. You have a commandment to separate. A commandment to avoid. A commandment to come out and be separate is another place. So, in the Bible, we're taught that bodies that are operating properly, Christian bodies that are operating properly, have a duty to excommunicate and to remove and separate and to keep out. And when bodies become corrupt, it's the duty of individuals and households and of clusters of households to separate and come out from among them. So then you go, well, how do we know who's right? The Bible. Right? There's a standard. There's a doctrine. There's, there's the word revealed from God. The mouth of God is the rule, the measuring rod by which you determine which thing is rightly formed. It is the Protestant doctrine that it is not numbers, it is not church institution and hierarchy, it's the word of God that differentiates. Huss, Luther, Wycliffe, the Waldenses, the Valois, Paul in synagogue after synagogue, Jesus at the general assembly of the Jewish church. The minority is often right. But guess what? The majority is often right. Churches have kicked out heretics. Councils have made right rulings. We have captured down in the Westminster Assembly excellent doctrine. Nicaea got it right. Chalcedon got it right. There are many times when the majority is right. So it is not the majority... It is not the minority. It's not in numbers or the few. What we glory in is the truth. The knowledge of God is the thing. It's the ruling rod. It's the measuring rod. The word of God is the thing. You don't get to say as an excuse the hierarchy, the majority, the numbers, and the money were all against me. And so I made the wrong choice. You have to judge. Private judgment the duty to read the Bible and to apply the Bible. You read the text and you compare it. There are four principles for interpretation to remember that help you to understand how to deal with the word rightly. What is the text saying? You're looking for a literal meaning. Poetry is not to be read woodenly. You look for the literal meaning of the figures of speech. So when it says that the man who fears the Lord is like a tree, you don't think that means that he's made of wood. Right? You think that means he is like a tree where? 
by the waters. Oh, so he's nourished. Right? That's the point of that metaphor. So you're looking for the meaning of the metaphor, the literal meaning of the figurative speech. So you convert language into literal meaning. You look at the grammar to see what are the possible constructions. You look at the local context to see what are the sentences before and, and the sentences after say. Is there a flow of argument? What does the book itself say? What's the place of this proposition in the book? And you look at the system of doctrine that is the whole of the scriptures, comparing scripture with scripture. And you avoid contradictory interpretations. You see, is it possible to interpret in a way that makes it so that the whole fits together? Those are the rules of interpretation. Literal meaning, according to the grammar, in the localized context, as fits into the whole, logically. So we have to read the Word, and the Word is what helps us to be fit to judge. If the Word is in your heart, you can then test other things. It's quickly available for your access. You cannot give counsel, you cannot advise, you cannot apply, you cannot do or speak at time of action if the word is not ready at hand. Not having the word in your heart is like not carrying a firearm. Somebody comes with a firearm to attack you or people you care about and you're not carrying the firearm, that firearm that you own is useless at that particular moment. The best gun is the gun that you have. If you don't have one with you, you cannot use it. The word that's best is the word that you have. If it's not in your heart, you don't have it to use. You're limited to the knowledge that you have. And so organization tools, the Ten Commandments, outlines, summaries, the solas, tulip. Having those types of things where you can use them to help you to compare things as you deepen your knowledge makes it so that you have things that you can use to deal with divisiveness, and offenses. So verse 17. We talked about the one way the modern church uses it. The way they apply it is don't apply it. And then apply it against those who are trying to apply it. The next way that the modern church tries to apply this is in an authoritarian, cultic way that does not have due process. You just, at the whim of a leader or at popular opinion, start to shun people. And if you don't shun those people, you get shunned. The biblical methodology is to apply Matthew 18. You go to the person and you talk to them. If you can't resolve things between you and the person, you take witnesses. If you can't resolve it with the witnesses, then you take it to the church. And the church has a formal public trial where charges are presented. And where charges are presented, there's opportunity to defend and bring counter-evidence. The evidence of the prosecution is first. Here's the charge, here's the basis, and the defense is able to be offered in response. And the burden of proof is on the charging party, not the charged. That's the biblical principles of due process, and we have a duty to do that. And there's more complexity, and we'll talk about the complexity, but there's the overview. There's the simple. If a church exercises discipline without process, it is using its authority tyrannically. And there's a need to call that out. And the need to call that out requires that there's public process to call a covenant suit to say, we need to be doing this properly. So those are things that need to be known. That's a part of how you mark a church as having the marks of the church. There are three marks of the church. You need to judge this church and every church by them. The three marks of the church are this. You'll find this in the Scottish Confession, and you'll find this in the Westminster Confession. You'll find it in the Protestant Confessions throughout the Reformation. These are the three marks of the church. Doctrine according to the Word of God. Worship according to the Word of God, especially the administration of the sacraments. And thirdly, is government that's consonant with the Word of God. And government that's consonant with the Word of God has the election of officers by the people, the public testing, and 
then you have, besides the public testing, the affirmation by both the existing officers and the heads of houses that those people should be put in after the testing. And that government should then exercise itself using due process. So you evaluate that. Well, part of the travesty of the Lord Jesus Christ's punishment is that he was given a trial at night in a secret location and that he was not afforded the usual public practices. And so those were violations of the Talmud at the time. And so they had already been set up that there were supposed to be uh, daylight laws. Daylight laws actually come from the Talmud, by the way. The idea that you need to have trials in the daylight in a public location, that you find that that was, a, that, was one, that was one of the requirements of the Jewish court in the Talmud. So the recognition of that, that public trials are public, is a part of that process. Verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. So this language, I urge you, it's parakalo. We've talked about this before. The, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and gives strength. He's the fortifier. Okay. Words of exhortation, urging, are words of strength. <coughs> Whenever you see that exhort or urge, it's come alongside and strengthen. So it's, I'm speaking to you as a brother in arms to strengthen you. I exhort you, brethren, point two here. Note those who cause divisions and offenses that are contrary to the doctrine you learn. Now, the, the way it's written here, it's, it's that you learned. Um, it's not the past tense. It's active in the Greek. So it's not just the doctrine that you learned. Normally, when you talk about the doctrine, you're used to seeing that you received, and that's past tense. Okay? The idea here is, yeah, the received doctrines in the objective word, and you need to be learning it. There's no, oh, I've learned it. You're learning it. You're getting more of it. You're storing up more of it. You're growing in the knowledge of God. And so the doctrine you learn, the doctrine that you are learning, that you have learned and are learning and will learn, according to that doctrine, are they offense-causing? Are they division-causing? If they're division-causing, according to that doctrine, and if they're offense-causing, according to that doctrine, avoid them. So I speak to you in such a way as to give you strength to perform it, brethren. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. This is not telling you to never have any interaction at all with people who are outside of the church. What it is telling you is those who come into the church saying they are brothers that cause offense without repenting when shown or who bring divisive types of behavior without repenting when shown, these people need to be avoided. You need to stay away from them. You need to create distance. You need to create boundary. You need to have hedging. This is a part of the priestly work. You let in and you honor and you build ties and you guard. And men, we have been lied to that it's our job to always be nice. Women, you have been taught since you were introduced to Christianity that to be a woman is to be nice. You are not called to always be nice. You are called to be fierce sometimes. The Proverbs 31 woman laughs at the winter because she's prepared. She's able to do business in the marketplace with Jewish merchants. She holds her own and out-negotiates them and trades profitably. She, like Donald Trump, wins all the trades. Not nice. Christian men should be known as fierce. But they should also be known 
as protectors. They should be known as gentle. Gentleness is not about having no strength. Gentleness is about controlling strength. A strong man can play with cubs and fight with lions. Do you know how to play and not hurt? And do you know how to fight to kill? This is what controlled strength looks like. Controlled strength, the ability to express the strength concentratedly, to have precision violence, the ability to withhold the strength and to not harm the weak. One of the glories of wrestling with your boys is you teach them the point at which they start to hurt. You help them in a safe environment to make mistakes. You get jabbed in the eye as opposed to somebody else that would punch them back. Older brothers learn what it's like to get jabbed in the eye and to not punch back because they're dealing with the little one. Right? And so this idea of helping to learn how to deal with that training is good for that. Young ladies need to be taught to glory and femininity and beauty creation, and they need to know what it is to deal with a man who's being impertinent. The ability to say no, and to then leave, and to bring in a male figure who's a protector, and to say, you are behaving improperly. And to have follow-up consequences. These are the kinds of things. The ability to say no. The ability to refuse. The ability to show someone who's doing something wrong that they're doing something wrong. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. The brethren are the covenanted brothers. This is the context we're in. We, the same people who Paul greets. The same people that Paul honored. The people who are greeting back right afterwards. This text is sandwiched between greetings. I greet, I greet, I greet. Avoid those who cause divisions. Greeting from. That's the structure of chapter 16. The divisions are necessary to make the greetings meaningful. If you don't keep anything out, then who cares about your honor and greetings? You'll give them to dogs. Right? Everyone's welcome here. Great. Your welcome means nothing. Your friendship is worthy of dogs. The covenanted brotherhood is meaningful because it has duties attached and limits to who those duties are owed. The covenanted brotherhood is not a duty to do everything for everyone. The covenanted brotherhood is a willingness to do almost anything for a very few. At some point, it will be almost everyone. But not yet. The church will fill the earth. But right now, there's a lot of dry patches. So the preservation of the resources and loyalty for those key places helps to differentiate the oasis from the desert and the garden from the wilderness. If we have a serious sense of loyalty a serious sense of care where we pick things up for each other, help each other, carry water for each other. If we do that and other people don't have that, that's the kind of environment that makes it so that the church is a city on a hill in a place of darkness. One of the ugly things about socialism is that it extracts money from productive people to make it so those resources are forcibly given to others and it diminishes the glory of mercy ministry. Because as opposed to the willing giving 
from people of their own assets. You have just, I'm totally accustomed to receiving other people's money, and I'm not accustomed to being grateful to them. That is the hardness of our society. So that church generosity is not viewed as a great thing. We go, yeah, of course you give out money. Institutions, that's what institutions are for. It's to take other people's money and give it to me. That's what institutions are for. That is the accustomed experience and habit of thought that is being built into people. And that makes it burned over for a generation. And then the next generation, when that goes bankrupt, because it goes bankrupt, there is very little giving. And in that environment, the church can shine. I pray we don't have to go through that. But maybe we will. And so what we have to do given the limitedness of our resources, and that limitedness is increased by overtaxation and tyranny. The limitedness of that means that we have to be careful to marshal our resources and affections and time because you live 70 or 80 years if you're strong, and then the judgment. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. The divisions, dicostasius, is the combination of the word to cut asunder or to break in two. And stasius is to stand. To stand is two, to separate. So it's breaking into two pieces. Okay? That's the idea. It's not always wrong to break something up. It's not always wrong to break something up. But when something breaks up, Somebody's at fault. Could be everybody. But at least one. We're supposed to note those who cause divisions and offenses and avoid them. So what does divisiveness look like? Divisiveness, on its most obvious form, is a failure to appear for a required assembly. Think about this. When is the body brought together? When there's a public calling together. The public calling together is the church authority saying, those who have covenanted assemble. Not coming to that without a legitimate reason is a refusal to be united. Then, you could think about the next types of things would be behaviors that make that coming together meaningless. Because coming together is a sign that we share in the same authority and we we share in the same bond. You come to the public worship (coughs) to share in prayer. We're asking for things together. To share in praising God together, giving thanks for the things he's given. To share in the word, to hear the same doctrine and to hear the same rules of practice. And you come together to take a sign or to covenant, so either covenanting or a sign of covenanting, to say, yes, we will do these things, and we believe these things. You know what makes that meaningless? When you do that, and don't. When you do the signs, come together, and then don't believe, and don't practice. So, if you don't partake in the private work with the saints when you separate, Okay, you're taking the sign, you're coming together, and then you don't do anything to bless anybody, don't do anything to work together with each other, don't do anything to be or receive blessing outside of that assembly. You're making that assembling together a trampling of the courts of God. Which is why hospitality is so emphasized throughout the Bible. Because hospitality is where you are getting together and doing things with each other and for each other. So you have organizing locations. And those are voluntary, gathering together. Now, the next part 
will be a failure to uphold the doctrinal unity. A failure to uphold the doctrinal unity would be you're not trying to learn, you have points that you disagree with, you won't try to resolve them. There's an unwillingness to dig into the Word of God and sometimes you in fact might just make up doctrines and share those doctrines that are made up, not from the Word of God, and start asserting them. That asserting of made up doctrines creates a separate body of doctrine that is not from the Word of God. And if that's put forward as something that's, here's standards of practice, or here's doctrine that must be believed, and it's not demonstrable from the Word of God, you are creating a separate body of doctrine and practice that comes aside of the Word of God and is added to it. All human tradition, all false revelation, all opinions asserted as authoritative are that. And so being very careful to differentiate between what does the Word of God say and what are my preferences or what were other people's preferences is key to avoiding divisiveness. Especially when you come into things like public worship and public teaching and public government. But in all of life, if you come in and you push somebody and say, you have to do this, you have to believe this, you're trying to impose something. If it's not from the Word of God, that's wrong. If it is from the Word of God, that can be good. Notice I said can be. Sometimes you can do it in the wrong order. And so to do that wisely, what you need to do is you need to understand what are the pressing items in a person's life and what are the more basic things philosophically. And generally speaking, your goal is to go from the more basic to the less basic and the more pressing or urgent those things get dealt with first. So when you're trying to help somebody, to counsel somebody, to bring the Word of God to somebody, it's very important to be able to differentiate between what the Word of God says and what your opinion is. It's very easy to counsel people if you just tell them to do whatever you feel like. It's very difficult to counsel people if you're trying to carefully avoid your preferences and to only give what you think is demonstrable from the Word of God and to then carefully cut out things that you think are possibly useful practices and to label those things for people. So the thing about divisive people is typically divisive people are particularly energetic and effective people. You can't be very divisive if you're not energetic. If you're not very smart, you're not going to be very effective at being divisive. Okay, you can bring offenses, but divisive people tend to be energetic and smart. And they, at least for periods of time, can have bursts of hard work. So the thing about divisive people is they're particularly attractive to get power fast. So that's one of the reasons that there's a requirement that novices not be given office in the church is because there's this need to be able to give people time to be able to test them. And otherwise, the divisiveness and the breaking in of the devil is, is more likely. So... The danger of people who look gifted and then are divisive. Now, on the other side, people that are useful and not divisive, it's easy to call them divisive. People who are useful and gifted, it's easy to call them divisive. So, this is the thing. If a person comes in and is divisive, they're going to argue about doctrine and they're going to try to influence people. If someone is gifted and useful, they're going to argue about doctrine, and they're going to try to influence people. So it's very important to be careful 
to judge rightly there. One of the best ways to make sure a church dies within a generation is to have a careful guarding against all influence and arguing. People who want to milk a church until it dies, they push out all the young bucks. Oh, you want to buck against me? No. Push them out. Churches that are powerful, that are self-replicating, that generate new leadership across generations, that have church plants, they encourage the young bucks to wrestle. Argue. Iron sharpens iron. And so that idea of the young bucks being useful, arguing, it's important. It's important. So we have to be careful to not say that anybody who argues and anybody who seeks to be influential in terms of ideas, that that doesn't mean they're divisive. The ladies need to argue with each other. There needs to be, how do you apply stuff? How do you figure things out? If there's a man and a woman arguing about something, guess what? Just because you're a man doesn't mean you're right. There's a need to argue. It's not unladylike to argue. And men, it's not unmanly to argue with a woman. The difficulty is it's hard to deal with and to avoid looking like you're being gentle, right? So you, you can train that in private discussion. And it helps you deal with marriage. I'll tell you what, you'll argue with your wife. If you don't argue with your wife, what are you guys doing? There's stuff to argue about. Things need to happen. So, because it looks like people who are argumentative and who are trying to influence other people are divisive, it's easy to set them up and to push them out. So, here's the thing. It's your job to hold me accountable to this, right? If I ever come up here and tell you I pushed somebody out because they were divisive and there wasn't a public trial, you need to kick me out. That's your job. If you don't do that, you're breaking your oath. If somebody's being divisive and we're not dealing with it, then we're neglecting and we're allowing the bulls to tear up the garden. Both have to be dealt with. If I didn't want to deal with that, I should take a different job. Anybody else who's seeking office? If you don't want to deal with that, you got to. You got to deal with that. So, a person's being divisive if they're teaching false doctrine or unclear doctrine and they're not willing to be corrected. You know what the main tool of heretics is? Be really clear when you're talking to the simple and be really ambiguous when you're in public or talking to the discerning. Heretics are murderers who know how to blend into the crowd. They like to avoid being caught. They know what heresy is, and they know they are heretics. They know because they've been called out, and they're unrepentant, and they go from church to church and house to house seeking to find people to murder. <coughs> so if they're unwilling to be clear in public, if they're unwilling to be clear when they're talking to me, if they're unwilling to be clear when they're talking to somebody else who's discerning, if they're not willing to be clear about the point of differentiation, there's an intention. And here's the thing. We don't like, because we're nice, we don't like thinking that people have good in, have bad intentions. We don't like calling out the bad intentions. When somebody won't be corrected, when somebody won't be clear, they are trying to murder souls and to get away with it. And they're trying to get control and milk a place. Heretics get control of institutions and then they make them closed. Okay? It's sort of like Marxists come in, they love democracies, because you can come into a democracy, get a socialist in power, and you only need to do it once, because then you can control the elections. 
So you get somebody into place, and then you control it, and it'll prevent it from having change of power. It happens in churches with heretics. It happens in churches with those who are divisive. So you maintain openness. You have discussion and public conflict. If someone is unclear and unwilling to become more clear upon challenge, if someone teaches falsehood even after being shown, if they refuse to affirm what's demonstrable from the word of God, those are signs of a divisive person doctrinally. Now, with practice, a failure to uphold the standard of practice or to repent when shown to have done so, someone's uncorrectable, proud not wanting correction, or if they punish the person who corrects them, if they show resentfulness, they seek to make it so that the pound of flesh is extracted from the person who has disciplined or brought to light the sin. Those are the types of behaviors that are divisive. So a standard of practice. We have adopted as a standard of practice the Westminster Standards. Okay, so we have a, a directory of worship, which is supposed to be something you can use to hold accountable for what are we supposed to do as a public worship uh, set of activities. We have the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments. We have the shorter catechism on the Ten Commandments. Those are things that lay out for us what are the standards of behavior that we expect from people and to be able to talk about those things be able to go to that, it's a lot easier than having to search every place in the Bible to find something. It's a pulling together of those things systematically, and we're saying this is what the Bible teaches. So it allows for discussion there. If somebody brings to your attention that there's sin, that's an offense, or then if you refuse to be corrected, then you're being divisive. Now, if a person brings a charge and you give a defense and show why the thing is not a violation of that charge, the person who keeps pressing the charge is the one that's now being divisive. It is possible to shut your ears to a just defense and keep making an accusation. That is sin. It's divisiveness. And people who throw around accusations and are not careful with them, what does the Bible teach is the appropriate punishment for a false accusation from a witness the eye for eye tooth for tooth right so the same penalty is what they're trying to bring on somebody else by false accusation so it's our responsibility to deal with that and to not allow accusations to just be pushed forward it's your job to seek to resolve conflict by dealing with offenses by giving just accusations and if somebody gives a defense, an explanation that's just, it's your job to retract that accusation. And if it was the case that you were grossly in error, you should apologize for the false accusation. So, I have principles written at the end here, and we'll spend next time talking about this more. We'll continue in looking at verses 18 through 20 about the, the motives and, and, and things that follow from that. And we'll talk about the application of how do you deal with divisiveness? How, what is the opposite of divisiveness? But this is a big deal. It's not focused on sufficiently. Churches are either nice and ineffective at this, or they are tyrannical. And they kill themselves across generations by destroying the life of the church. And so what's necessary is an environment where there can be a wrestling of the young bucks, where there can be <coughs> argumentation and open public debate, and yet at the same time where the boundaries are guarded. That's necessary for the health of the church. Think about this for a second. I want to help you to see how glorious this is. Imagine a church where as opposed to just thinking, all we care about is what's happening in here, you think what's happening in here is preparing us to conquer out there. The men who are the young bucks, the men who engage, the men who wrestle with each other, when they're unleashed out there, they can get a lot done. Those are the men that when you go into battle, you're going, I'm glad they're on our side. When all you're thinking about is how do I maintain control so I can choose the color of the carpet, 
those guys are a problem. When instead you're going, the carpet, I didn't notice we had carpet, we're too busy. That's when those guys are really valuable. And so we need that. We need each other. We need to work together. We need to go push on things. Now, I'm an elder. I'm the only elder here right now. And I'll tell you what. Where there's a lot of things we're not doing that we should be doing. And when we get bigger and we have better organization, we'll be doing a lot of things that we're not doing. Right now, the habit of thought is inwardly. Get things in order. Fix the thing. Deal with new members coming in. Deal with all those basic things. This is You don't just assemble an army so you can sit around. You assemble an army so you can take over a place. This is the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're getting together. The American church is obsessed with gathering armies and doing nothing with them. This culture matters when the army's doing something. We've been working on gathering for a long time, and the Lord has recently blessed us and added to our numbers, and I pray he continues to do so. But what we do is we pull that together, and you have that environment, and you go and you evangelize, and you disciple, and you do mercy ministry to support the word, to bring people in, and we expend the resources. That's what we need to do. So, man, I need your help to do that. I need your help to lead that. I need your help to push that. I need your help to spend the resources, deploy the resources, and have them be spent effectively. We need to use these things to grab those who are dying and to pull them back. We need those to hold things together and to deal with the fact that other people don't know what's going on. They don't know the difference between a boy and a girl. The darkness that people have is absurd. And so we need to be doing that. We need to be organizing that. That's what's happening. We're in the process of forming up leadership and extending that out. This kind of environment, there's going to be more and more to argue about. And guess what? We're going to have more and more time pressure and less and less time to focus inwardly as that grows. We're in training right now. The judo moves are slow. Punch like this. Punch like this. Throw like that. Right? We're doing that. It's slow. But when we have less time to think, when we have less time to think, we have to do that faster. And so there's going to be mess-ups, and we have to know how to deal with conflict well. And we have to take it seriously. If we can't deal with conflict in a low-pressure environment where we're not doing anything, we're not going to be able to deal with conflict when we're in a high-pressure environment doing lots of things with lots of hot messes coming in. Because i tell you what, everybody who's alive out there is a hot mess. And you bring them in, and they bring the hot mess. And if you don't know how to help to get that in order and how to deal with conflict and resolve conflict and bring it back to peace and train in the context, right? You've got somebody who's punching you in the face. New believers are punching you in the face, telling you to help them, right? That's what they're doing. Over and over again, they're just punching you in the face, saying, help me. And if you don't know how to stop the punch and then help them in between punches, you can't help them. That's what the training's about. So this is the process of conflict resolution. You should do that. All right. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova. Thank you for your teaching, Elder Reese. Uh, just a real quick question. You said it twice, and I wrote down half of it. What's the second part? If a person is gifted and useful. Um, if a, a person is you know, gifted, useful, intelligent, trying to be influential. Gifted, useful, intelligent, trying to be influential. Those are the people that are either divisive or easy to plant as being divisive. So, great. And there was another portion of that. Maybe it's, maybe the negative is that they, they can be the divisive person. Yeah, right. right. So, so there, there's the divisive person, and then there's the, the gifted, useful person, right? The, the divisive person and the gifted, useful person. They look very similar at the outset. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's true. Thank you for that. Thank you for reminding me of that. And uh, particularly appreciated the uh, quote, a strong man can play with cubs and fight with lions. And particularly uh, useful and good to think about, especially in these days when toxic masculinity is very prevalent. Yep. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to us. We ask that you would build up this church. We ask that you'd make us useful, help us to do things. I ask that you'd give the men strength, give them initiative, help them to find things they want to see 
church capital deployed to do, help them to know what the church is authorized to do, help us to understand that the doctrine, the worship, and the government are what we're given authority to deal with, and that mercy ministry is to come alongside that. I ask that you'd help us to try to deploy these means, and that you would give the men a sense of strength and power, and that you'd help their homes to be in order, and I pray that you would raise up workers for the harvest. Father, I ask that you would continue to bless us with order and numbers. I ask that you'd help us to be effective, that you'd help us to be useful, that you'd help us to glorify you. Help us to learn to deal with conflict, to have hard edges and strength, and to also be gentle and to be able to give strength. Father, I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.